Your company, it's your baby. My 19th business idea. At first, it's about survival. Five of those made it to sort of the real business stage. And how can you tell when you're successful? Number one, how big is the market? Number two, how quickly is it growing? And number three, how profitable is the product or service? And what's next? Do you grow or go? Selling a company is a very personal decision. If starting a company is like getting married, then selling it is a little bit like getting divorced. How do you decide when it's time to sell? So a lot of employees, when they come on to startups, they ask what your exit expectations are. And I always say, when somebody puts a number in front of me that I go, wow, you think the company's worth that? That's when I would sell. This is the language of business. A weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at exit strategies. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Let's face it, dealing with your baby or the company you started from scratch is a lot different than advising someone else. The savviest of entrepreneurs at some point are supposed to bring in professional management, or basically people who not only know what they're doing, but more importantly, can also be objective. John Lieber is indeed one of those professional people. He's a CFO who has extensive experience with startups. And John, welcome to Language of Business. Thank you for having me. John, so many people spend so much time trying to focus on the market that they're competing in. How do you size markets? Do you do it in-house? Do you rely on outside services or a combination of the two? The answer is it depends, but really a little bit of both. I think in general, one of the values that any management team brings to a situation is its understanding of the market and the product or service that it's developing and selling at the end of the day. And so I think what's important there is having a feeling and a view of what that market is and how it's growing and what the factors are that impact that growth. However, there are times, for example, where you need to go out and buy data from a third party, or you might need to go out and get some consulting help because it's just an area that's just not very well defined. And so in those cases, you would actually use a combination of different things of those two methodologies to size the market. So for example, in the case of an industry that's close to my heart, the biopharmaceutical sector, if you were developing a new drug to treat asthma, That market is pretty well known. You can go buy data, for example, and it will tell you how many asthma patients there are in the North American market, the European market, et cetera. However, if you were trying to develop a drug for an orphan disease where there's no other marketed drugs right now, there you might need to go out and hire somebody, hire some expertise, perhaps bring somebody in-house who's used to working in spaces like that. So once you've sized the market, now you're going to focus on market share. To what extent do you look at your own company versus external trends, or are you really focused on moving your own needle from one side to the other? It only matters depending upon what other things are. So the factors that really feed into whether I care about it or not is a few things. Number one, how big is the market? Number two, how quickly is it growing? And number three, how profitable is the product or service that you are selling? So for example, you could have a really low market share, but of a huge market that's growing very rapidly, and that could be great if your product or service is also very profitable. You could have a much greater market share. For example, say it's only a $100 million market. Maybe it's a little bit slower growth, but if you've got 60% share and a pretty profitable product, you could also be very happy. So it really depends upon the dynamics of those three things that we just talked about. Let's move on to profitability. You're doing well. You're in growth mode. How do you as the CFO determine when to reinvest those profits, distribute them to your shareholders, or actually start looking for follow-on products? There are three different ways that I kind of think about it. I think most sort of investors, board members think about it, management teams. Number one, where are you going to earn the greatest return? And that's really the most important piece. So do you keep investing in your primary product, your first product, for example? 
because you think that there's a lot more growth ahead of it. Maybe there's a line extension you can do that can extend or prolong the life cycle of that product. Secondly, you would want to compare that to a new product development and the risk of developing a new product and what the returns are there and how that actually hopefully feeds into your overall business. And then lastly, at the end of the day, if you don't have a good opportunity to reinvest money into the business, then the right thing to do is to give it back to the shareholders because they might be able to earn a greater return than you. Who ultimately has responsibility for this? Is it your job as CFO to finally make the tough decision? Is it a joint decision with your CEO? Or what is your personal experience indicated? That's a good question. At the end of the day, it's management's job to go ahead and figure out what the right thing to do with the money is, and then how to invest it, and then ultimately make a recommendation to the board, and the board will then decide if they agree or disagree. Usually, if management makes a compelling recommendation, they'll agree. Have you ever had veto rights over the board? No, I have not. Would you want to? Uh, I don't think so. In typical governance, I think the board really should be the final say um, if you want to have good, appropriate governance for a company. Let's look now, John, at a product portfolio. How do you deal with your biggest contributor to profitability? Do you marshal all of your resources supporting it? Do you ride it until it's essentially dead? Or do you proactively start changing some of those resources to smaller, less successful products? I think it's very important to make sure that you transfer some of those resources or at least balance how the resources are shared amongst the products in your portfolio. Because ultimately, the question that every investor is going to ask and every management team has to ask before the investor asks it is, so what does the next five years look like? How does 10 years outlook? And if you can't answer your question as to how you're going to grow your business or improve profitability off of that main product, then you really do need to be investing in alternative products. Have you ever seen a company be in too many markets concurrently? Actually, there was a company that I joined that was a small company, and it was trying to do too many things at the same time. Now, I will say that larger companies with deeper organizations and a lot more systems and processes in place probably can support lots of different businesses. We see lots of companies out there that do that. For smaller companies, I think that's a much harder thing to do. It's a much greater challenge. And you can run the risk of creating confusion amongst your employees, which we had actually at this company, confusion in the marketplace, which we also had. Your quality can suffer in the product or the service that you're offering. So it is important, I think, especially as a small company, to stay focused, but to know when you need to start investing in those follow-on products. What does your gut instinct tell you about when it's time to sell? There aren't really any hard and fast rules when it's time to sell. It's really governed by a few different factors. The first could be, for example, do I need to build something in the company that somebody else already has? So for example, let's say I need to build a global sales force and a global field service team to service some equipment that I've sold. If there's other companies out there that already have that, it might make sense, actually, to go ahead and sell to them so that I don't actually have to go through the investment and the, and the trouble and the time and the risk of building those things out. That's one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is maybe the investors actually need the capital back. For example, if you have a venture investor who's been in the company in an investment for many years, all of a sudden the IRR starts working against them, the time value of money is working against them, and they may need to get money back for other reasons, for example. As the CFO, how do you yourself define success? I think success at the end of the day is building a successful company that delivers returns to shareholders that are commensurate with the risk that they took. So for example, in a venture investment, you would think investors would want to see returns in the 20 plus percent, 30 percent range basically. If it's a publicly traded stock, you know, maybe a 10 to 15 percent return per year might be a good thing. And so at the end of the day, it really does depend upon how much risk and how much time went into that investment, basically. But I do think ultimately the way you do that is by building a company that's built to last, that has products that are successfully developed, and ultimately where you're executing on the plan that you created. Thanks, John. 
John Lieber, a CFO with extensive experience working with startups. Coming up, do you grow or do you go? And how do you know what your company's worth? But first, how selling your company is like getting a divorce. As the language of business continues, back to Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Burkhan Naziri is a technology entrepreneur with more than 15 years of experience advising and building high-growth software companies. He spends his time these days not only advising entrepreneurs, but also building his latest company, Extension Engine. Furkan, welcome to The Language of Business. Awesome to be here. Awesome to have you. So much of the fun of being an entrepreneur is building a company, especially from scratch. Why would an entrepreneur then ever want to sell? Selling a company is a very personal decision. If starting a company is like getting married, then selling it is a little bit like getting divorced. There's a lot of reasons that could cause that to happen. You could have fallen out of love. It could be a decision not yours. Your partner could have left you. Ultimately, an offer was made that you couldn't refuse. But in marriage, you rarely divorce for the money. You might divorce about the money, but not for the money. How about as an entrepreneur? Financing activities and business operations are two different things, especially when you raise money from a third party. Sometimes the decisions are out of your control. One of the things I love about my company, Extension Engine, is that we have no outside investors, no bank debt, five partners that are committed to the long term. And frankly, I joke that my exit strategy is death. And what that means is that we get to focus on solving our customers' problems. And I really like that, being able to separate the financing activities from the business activities. Basically, you get to do the thing that I love most, which is run a company. Having done this for well over a decade, is it important for everyone to have as much passion as you have as the entrepreneur? I don't have a meter to measure passion. There's no passionometer in this business. So I don't worry about that. When my employee walks in the door of a customer, they are the brand of my company. And so it's really important that they're bought into the mission, they understand our principles and values, and they know what we do and why. And to be able to communicate that when they're in front of a client. And so I really look for alignment. Even if it's a lower level employee and not somebody in the executive suite? More importantly, you know, we sit around with the executives, but that's not who your customer is dealing with on a day-to-day basis. It's really important to have that alignment and understanding, and really that's the executives, that's the leadership's job, is to communicate and make sure that the team is aligned. How do you determine when the right time has arrived to bring in professional management? Professor Noam Wasserman at Harvard Business School has a framework for thinking about this. There's two types of entrepreneurs, essentially, the rich type and the king type. The rich type are focused on doing whatever it takes to get to a successful exit, essentially the theory being to have a smaller piece of a bigger pie. The king types are interested in control, and it's about maintaining ownership of all the decisions as you go through. You might end up, if you're a pure rich type entrepreneur, end up stacking your management team before you even raise your first round of funding and using that to get to an exit quickly. If you're a king type entrepreneur, you might end up waiting for the last possible minute when you're in a crisis. What would you prefer as an entrepreneur in terms of a liquidity event, a company sale versus an IPO? I actually looked at the numbers and there are about 40,000 companies that have been funded by VCs in the last decade. Of those, just 39 companies have actually reached a billion dollars or more in valuation. That's a fraction of a percentage. 75% of companies actually fail, meaning they go out of business outright or they sell and don't return capital to investors. So it's actually a very small percentage of companies that actually get to a position less than 1% where they can even think about going public. 
So to answer your question, I would pick an IPO if I had the choice, but 99 plus percent of entrepreneurs don't even get to make that choice. Even if there's a lockout period that you can't sell those shares for 60, 90 or 180 days? Well, I think if you're in the middle of a bubble in 1999, that's something that you would consider. But those times I think are in our past and real good companies, the vast, vast majority of them are going to go in trade sales these days. So much time is spent focusing on new business versus existing business. How do you think through taking care of your existing customers and maximizing the lifetime value of them versus always focusing on new customers or fresh blood? Initially, you don't have any customers. It's 100% about new customer acquisition. As you get farther into maturity, you're going to end up with some mix of harvesting and sort of land and expand, you know, get your new customers and then grow business with them. The rule of thumb is maybe two-thirds from existing clients, one-third from new business in that sort of intermediate stage. The other interesting question is when do you get rid of customers? When do you look at the customers you got, for example, in the early days and think about, you know what, that we had to do a pivot. We need to get out of that customer base. And that's actually a really a, a tougher thing as an entrepreneur. Those early customers can be sort of your first friends and knowing when and having the discipline of wanting to get rid of a customer in a startup is actually as important as knowing when to and how much to focus on acquiring new customers. Is your opinion the same when it comes to new versus existing products? A little bit different. Launching one successful product is hard enough, let alone two. Oftentimes, it's many years later in the company's life cycle that they're come to the point where they have a mature first product that's been successful, and now they need to launch a second product into the market. The skill sets that are successful in launching a new product are actually slightly different than the skill sets of an organization required to maintain and grow a business at a later stage. How so? One of the things that you have to do in terms of new product development is you have to be really disciplined about listening to your customer, understanding their desires and requests, creating a new product out of that. Once you get more into mature product, you're looking more at a portfolio of issues around pricing, around sales channel and strategy and management and operational issues that are different from those early product development. I often find that organizations that are good at one don't necessarily exercise that other muscle. Oftentimes it makes sense to go outside of your organization and try to recruit some of that DNA to come in or retask some of your early founders and give them another crack at that new product development. Furkan, thank you. Furkan Nazeri, technology entrepreneur with 15 years of experience with multiple companies. Still to come, where do you keep your bucket list? Do you keep it in a drawer or in a notebook or in your head? Well, like everything, there's an app for that. And how do you decide when it's time to sell your business? Next up on The Language of Business. Our sponsor is Swapons. Want to experience something truly unique on the other side of your phone? Swapons. Personalize your phone case like never before. Pick your case model and color. Sleek design. Anti-slip sides. Drop test protection, passed and exceeded. Choose your swaps. There are thousands of great designs, sports, travel, nature, and more. Or create your own swaps. Upload your pics or your business logo. Add custom frames. Swap-ons. They start an infinite swap for you. Live it, love it, swap it. Swap-ons. You're listening to the Language of Business look at exit strategies. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. 
We're here in Cambridge in the heart of Central Square at Backupify. They provide a secure second copy of your cloud data. My guest is Rob May, who is the CEO and founder, and welcome to The Language of Business. Thanks for having me. So, Rob, you are quoted on LinkedIn as someone who loves to solve complex problems and also are fascinated by the way things are valued. Yes. Is that intrinsic value, like making the world a better place, or is that actually financial value of a company? Yeah, so it's more the financial value of things in general. I'm really interested in the psychological component of valuation, which is not something they typically teach you in finance class. But if you really think about even financial values, they're heavily, heavily weighted on expectations of future value, expectations of growth and everything else. So I really find it fascinating to tease into those things and figure out why things are valued the way they are. And what is ultimately more important for you, getting to the heart of a great idea or actually starting a long-term successful company? Wow, that's a great question. I think starting a long-term successful company. There are a lot of ideas, and I've had a lot of ideas. Backupify was actually my 19th business idea. Five of those made it to sort of the real business stage. And the reason I'm not doing any of the other ones is that they didn't go into that long-term standalone company. So... How important is marketing communications and culture to your company? Yeah, so marketing communications is incredibly important when you're in a market like Backupify, which is a new market and you have to be evangelical. Because we're launching a product to market that hasn't existed before, you have to be very concerned that people don't think it's something else, that people clearly understand the value prop and all that kind of stuff. And that really all falls on you know, marketing communications. Whereas if you were selling something that was in a market that was more well-known and understood, you probably don't need to invest as heavily there, right? It's just like, hey, here's, here's how we differentiate from what else is on the market. And so that's a little simpler. In terms of culture, I think it's very important. And I think it's a mistake that we made early on was not really defining a culture as well as we should have. Because you want to make sure that every person you hire shares the same values and vision about how we work and what kinds of things we do, how decisions get made. When you hire somebody who's not a cultural fit, it's one of the worst things that can happen to an early stage company. Where are you from in the United States and have you imported any of your homeland, your home city culture into Backupify? Yeah, so we're from Louisville, Kentucky. I also lived in Florida for a good while. Four of us moved up here from Louisville and we've since hired one other person from Kentucky and moved them up to Boston. If this airs in Kentucky, you'll probably get some, some hate mail <laughs> because we're known there as like the company that got away. But, you know, the truth is they're just certain types of companies that you can't build outside of major tech hubs. And I think this was one of them. Have you introduced any Kentucky sports culture into the company? We have. So two things. Number one, all of our conference rooms are named after college basketball mascots. I'm a you know Kentucky Wildcats alma mater, so our main conference room is the Kentucky Wildcats room. And we also have the first two days of the March Madness NCAA tournament, our official company holidays. Looking at your successes, you're certainly no stranger to startups. What's more important to you, building the company or harvesting your success? I would say at this phase in my life, it's building the company, right? I'm still a young guy. I still have a lot to learn. I feel like building the company every year, it's different. You know, there's more people, more customers, different types of financing, different types of problems. I think the longer that I build the company and learn, the greater my reward is when I decide to harvest someday. And as you're deciding when to harvest someday, how carefully do you study sector or industry trends? I look at them really closely. Like, so we think of ourselves as a software services company. So I read the quarterly reports of ServiceNow, Salesforce, Workday, Constant Contact, other SaaS companies to figure out what their metrics look like, what kind of things they're seeing in the market. That stands for? Software as a service. 
you're five years into a very successful startup. How do you determine when it's time to merge, sell, or go IPO? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think it boils down again to a lot of personal choice. There are some entrepreneurs who from day one have an exit plan. They want to build it to the stage and sell it or move on. There are other entrepreneurs who they love the idea so much. They think of it as a lifestyle. They just want to ride it as long as they're capable. And the way I think about it is I'm willing to do this as long as I'm having fun. The way somebody could override that decision would be offer such a premium for the company that I would go, wow, maybe I should have fun doing something else. So a lot of employees, when they come on to startups, they ask what your exit expectations are. And I always say, when somebody puts a number in front of me that I go, wow, you think the company's worth that? that that's when I would sell. I like how you described it as a personal decision, but to what extent do you or should you involve employees, your management team, investors, other stakeholders in the decision to merge, sell, or IPO? You have to think a lot about that because employees and investors do have their own expectations. One of the best ways to minimize that, I think, is to make sure that everybody's aligned going into it, right? To talk to employees about what my expectations are and what their expectations are about selling the company someday. To talk to investors and understand what are their plans for Backupify. Do they need a quick win? You do have to think about those things and, and take them into consideration because you know this isn't all about me. It's very much about the employees and the investors as well. You're five years into a successful startup. What duty do you owe to your existing customers, whether they've been with you from the beginning or just recently, if you ever choose to merge, sell, or IPO the company? So the interesting thing about being a backup company is being publicly traded gives you a lot of credibility, right? You've got these customers, and they know that if we're publicly traded, you have access to public capital markets. We have lots of certifications and oversight that, that a private company doesn't necessarily need. So I actually think... IPO would be a very good thing for us. If we were looking at a merger or an acquisition, I would very much think about the impact on the customers because like, I would not sell Backupify to somebody who really just wanted to acquire our technology and our team and was going to shut down the product because I feel like we owe our customers a lot more than that. They've been big fans and have really helped us build a great company. And in the long run, somebody should want to buy what we've built. Rob, thank you. Rob May, CEO and founder of Backupify. You probably have a bucket list. Do you keep it in a drawer or in a notebook or in your head? Well, like everything, there's an app for that. One more time, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Warm location at a second company here in Boston, Achiever. They want you to live a happier life through sharing first-time experiences. I'm with founder and CEO, Ryan Traeger. Welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks for having me, Greg. I appreciate it. Your website is cool. The video overviews are even better. But how does it all work? The easiest way to think about it is we're trying to help you track, discover, and share all the things that you want to do and get credit for the things that you've done. So this is all the things that are on your bucket list, big and small. But how is the online world better than the old school, very boring, written bucket list? Uh, well, we think there's a lot of ways it's more interesting when it's online. The first is that it's centralized. It can be used and accessed from any device. Uh, it's also a place where, if you're willing to do so, you can share this information and find other people in your life that want to do the same things as you, which is very unique. You can't share a piece of paper that's on your fridge with someone else and say, what are these things do you also want to do? Certainly you can, but it's very analog. So let's walk our viewers through a typical example. Sure. I might want to go to the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. What happens if I achieve that two months from now? 
So you come in, you add that to your list and say, I want to go to the Grand Canyon. Ideally, we find a way to connect you with a business that can help you do that, maybe for a discount. You come in, once you've done it, check it off, and then the system starts to understand you a little bit better, and it can start to suggest other things that you might want to do as well. So in the event of a national park like the Grand Canyon, you'd also see things like Zion, Bryce National Park, Canyonlands, other things like that that would be interesting to you, hopefully, because you're sort of a, an adventurer, an outdoorsman. Now, is this going to be suggested to me anonymously or by my demographic or actually personally to me? All of those things ratchet up to you personally. So your demographic would certainly be taken into account, your existing behavior, behavior of people like you. So we're using a lot of different data sources to make the suggestion you're getting valid and interesting to you. Um, if you want to keep it anonymous and just have that be your local planning but be able to access it from anywhere, you can do that too. And the typical user is going to go into this knowing what you're going to do with the data. Absolutely, yes. We're very, very open about how we use your data. And at this point, and really forever, we'll only ever use your data to get you interesting information back to you. So how do you then make money? We connect you with businesses that help you do the things that you want to do. So in the event of the Grand Canyon, we would connect you with, ideally, a lot of different businesses. This would be travel companies, tourism companies, um, things to do in the area of the national parks that you're visiting. Right. So this could be as simple as a restaurant while you're there. You're not going to be eating at the Grand Canyon every day. So we want to make sure that you find the best restaurants that are around you or the museums that are in that area too. So the idea is that anytime you broker a relationship with a provider of the service, and we've done that for you. When you transact, we take a small fee. So if the system is suggesting I take a certain airline or book a certain tour of the Grand Canyon or Yosemite National Park and it costs me $100, you're going to get some percentage, three, five, seven, ten dollars out of the deal. That's right. And it's never coming from the user. It's always done from the business. And do you think these collected data are going to have any interest to advertisers? Our long-term vision for this product is an anonymous market intelligence product that scrubs your name and your personal information from anything that we would ever send out there. But we would say, people like Greg, who like to go to national parks, also like to eat this kind of food, go to these kinds of sporting events, read these kinds of books, and so on. And then their brand becomes more relevant to you when they actually go out and reach out to you again. Ryan, the focus of this segment is on harvesting and what you do with the successful business that you've built up. How do you measure your success? At this point, we are solely focused on user growth. This is constantly growing the number of users that are in our system, the data points that they're giving us, and the connectivity that we're providing between other users and of like minds. Uh, so for us, we are focused on driving that up as high as possible all the time. And how will you benchmark your success against, say, other startups? We are very prideful about the type of data we give back to our users, and we curate all of it. So every single experience is a discrete and interesting one. So you'll never see, in the example of the Grand Canyon from earlier, you'll never see visit the Grand Canyon 10 times in our system. That happens with all of our other competitors, in some cases many more than five or 10 times, right? Because they allow people to come in and say, here's what I want to do. We do that too, but we also say, okay, well, that's already in our system. Here's where it is. And so for us, curation is a point of differentiation and, uh, and clarity. What are your own goals for the business so far? I want to be at 10 million users in five years, and that is my biggest goal. It is incredibly lofty. We started in October, and we had 500 users at that point, so we've quintupled even that small amount in a very short period of time, so I'm very happy, but I don't really settle at any point. Ryan, what do you think your next strategic moves are for the company? Well, we're right in the middle of a brand new initiative for the new year called 52 and 52, and we're challenging everyone in the world, really, to go do one new experience, small or big, once 
once a week per year. And the idea is really to go out there and do all the things that are on your list, right? Stop having it be a list that you aren't checking things off of. Get out there, even if it's just reading a new book or clearing your Netflix queue. It could also be climbing Mount Everest or jumping out of a plane, right? So we're trying to get you to start doing more because we're trying to build momentum in your life and connect you with all the people in your life that want to do these things too. What would an end game look like for Achiever? Well, right now we're very focused on building a business that might be attractive for acquisition, but aren't focused on acquisition, right? So we want to be getting as many users as possible. And if we do that right, and we drive towards that goal, we think we'll start to become attractive for a lot of different types of companies. Whether we decide or not to work with them is another story. That's probably a few years out. Ideally, we'd like to keep the mission that we're on at this point. But of course, if an attractive partnership opens up at some point, we would certainly entertain it. Ryan, thank you. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. We now have downloads in 39 countries. Sri Lanka, Estonia, and Peru are the latest to come on board. We appreciate the support. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Thank you. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening to The Language of Business.